0: Today we are finishing up the letter of 1 Peter. These are Peter's final words to uh, his people who were exiled to the frontiers of the Roman Empire. And uh, beyond that, there's something here in this passage that helps us answer an age-old question or debate, or at least something Christians have been asking for about 80 years. Question is, can I pray for a parking spot? is that appropriate or is that just incredibly frivolous to ask god for well, think about that as i read from first peter chapter 5 verses 6 through 14 peter writes humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of god so that at the proper time he may exalt you casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you be sober minded be watchful By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written you briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, we're grateful for your word, and we ask that you would help us now by your spirit to hear what you have for us this morning. Please apply uh, the truth of your word, the gospel to our hearts. Help us to believe and live in light of your truth uh, this day and, and all of our days. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, General George Patton was a famous U.S. general uh, in World War II. You might have seen the movie about him in the 70s, starring George C. Scott. And uh, there's actually a scene in the movie that is very faithful to actual events. Patton was visiting his wounded soldiers in Sicily at a field hospital, and he was going by all the beds, and he came across a guy who was just sort of hunched over in his chair, his name was Private Charles Cool, and he had been admitted into the hospital under the diagnosis of exhaustion, what was then known as shell shock, we might call it PTSD. And General Patton asked him, you know, where, where are you wounded? And he said, I'm nervous. I guess I just can't take it. I'm not wounded. Patton grew enraged. And he slapped him across the chin with his gloves, and he took him by his collar, yanked him up, drug him out of the tent, pushed him out of the tent, and kicked him in his backside as he went out. And he screamed at the doctors and he said, don't admit this blankety blank. He said, send him back to the front. Do you hear me, you blank? You're going back to the front. Now when you think of God, you have a picture of God in your head. Do you think of him as a sort of a, a nurturing mom who wipes away your tears and kisses all your boo-boos and owies? Or do you picture him more as a general patent type, yelling at you to get back to the front, be a grown-up? See, I think when we read this passage quickly, kind of skim over it, we can hear God as more like a general patent We hear this, you know, humble yourself, be sober-minded, self-controlled, right? There's a roaring lion trying to devour you. You gotta resist him. You need to stand firm. Yeah, you're suffering, but so is everyone else, and it's only gonna last a little while anyway. I've told you the truth. This is no conversation. You simply have to do what I say. Just do it. It's up to you. See, our culture pays a lot of lip service to mental and emotional health and self-care, but we really like strength, champions, winners, people who will crush it. And particularly when we're talking about things like spiritual growth and maturity and, and holiness, we just assume in any religious tradition, Christian, Buddhist, anything, we assume that that takes an incredible amount of internal fortitude and discipline. But this you know, dry your own tears, stiff upper lip, uh, pick yourself up by your bootstraps, that's not what Peter is saying. These are not his last words to his people. And there's one verse here that really helps us unlock the whole passage, and it's verse seven. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. We're really going to focus on that verse this morning as we go through the passage, and we'll look at it under two points. And the first point is this, God cares about what you care about. God cares about what you care about. Before you can trust anyone with your cares, anxieties, and worries, you need to know that that person actually cares about those, right? That they care about what you care about. And God does. Which I think can be really hard uh, to believe sometimes, right? Uh, Here we have in, in our culture this word anxiety. That's a scary word. For us, right? It can be used in such a way that suggests a diagnosis of a condition that might need medication or therapy. This word here in Greek can be translated as cares, worries. We're going to use all those different words this morning. But it can be easy to think that, you know, if you have faith in God, you shouldn't really have any major, desperate cares or anxieties. Those would be signs of doubt, signs of weak faith, even idolatry, because it means you're kind of believing some lies, not believing the truth of the gospel. So, you can think that Christians really shouldn't have cares and anxieties powerful enough to have to cast them upon God. Now, even if you know better, even if your theology is better than that, it's hard not to live that way and tell yourself that. Are you allowed to crack? Are you allowed to be needy? Are you allowed to be weak, to be flawed? Will God accept that from his follower? Does he really care about whatever you care about and worry about? You know, something I'm uh, prone to say as a dad and I'm actually working hard not to say it is this. That's not worth crying over, right? One of my kids might be crying. This is their whole life. They might might be crying, you know, I feel like they're getting all worked up over nothing. This isn't important enough to cry over. It's like you want to forbid your child from expressing their emotions. When a a child is crying on TV or movies, what usually happens? Someone, an adult hugs them and says, shh, there, there, that's okay, don't cry, shh. Like we're trying to keep them from expressing their fear, their worry, their anxiety. I'm saying this isn't important enough to cry over. And when we communicate that to a person, uh, that it's not important enough to be sad about or to be worried about, we think we're helping them have a better perspective. But what they hear is, You're not important to me. I don't care about what you care about because you're not important to me. God forbid my children think I don't care about what they care about. But this is my temptation as a father. I want my kids tough, right? I don't want them upset at just anything. I want them only upset at the truly worst things. They need to be independent. They need to be strong enough to navigate this world. They need to be able to figure stuff out for themselves. They have to be tough. It's a hard world. I don't want them to have many fears or anxieties or worries. So they got to be tough. Get up. Dust yourself off. Wipe your eyes. Let's go. So it makes sense that we might think that's how God sees us. Particularly if you've had challenges with your earthly father. Uh, Many of us here have. Maybe your dad loved you in his own way or did the best he could or whatever else, but for many, you have experienced a a palpable distance between you and your dads, a silence, some kind of communication uh, that what you care about isn't important, that you are not known, not enjoyed. And what we usually do in response to that is toughen up. And we also toughen up with our Heavenly Father, with God. How many times have Christians said, you know, God has more important things to deal with than my situation. Of course you shouldn't pray for a parking spot. Doesn't God have more important things to do? General Patton slaps people who pray for parking spots. Right, but that logic of importance can be cruelly absolute, right? Is anything in your life as important as all the wars and refugee crises and mass disease and hunger and poverty happening around the world? From one vantage point, no. Nothing in your life, none of your cares are relatively important in that sense or worth God caring about. So really, you're all alone. You do have to pick yourself up by your bootstraps. No one should really care about what you care about. You aren't important true or false? Listen to God's word. Casting all your anxieties on God because he cares for you. You are important to God, your heavenly father. When you love someone, you care about what they care about. He loves you so much that He sent His Son Jesus to take on our nature, to learn what it is to be human, to be weak and hungry and dependent and finite. God knows hunger and thirst. Can you believe that? God, eternal, infinite, all powerful, He knows hunger and thirst. God knows what it is to weep over betrayal and loss of friends. God knows what it is to be afraid. God knows what it is to be annoyed with crowds. Jesus was faced crowds all the time. He was annoyed. And when he was in the court of the Gentiles, he got violent and started turning over money changers and merchants. It's like Costco on a Saturday. Jesus knows. God knows what it is to be slandered and to be called evil. He knows what it is to be beaten and killed. God the Son came to identify with us so he could say with utter truthfulness, I care about what you care about. I know what it is. You are important, and I will stop at nothing to pull you through whatever it is that's harming you. I mentioned before how uh, me and my family, we like to watch the reality show Survivor. This season, there's a particular contestant named Jake O'Kane. Good old boy from Boston, thick Boston accent, younger guy, looks normal, looks average, but he gives his backstory. He recently has lost 100 pounds. He had been a compulsive eater for years. He would just binge eat in secret. He tells a story that one time uh, his family was all together. Everyone was over at his parents' house. They were all inside, but he was out in his car just chowing down food. And you can imagine how isolated and shameful he felt and he had no control over himself and he didn't want to be with anybody, not even his family. And his mom comes out to him and she comes out to his car and she says, Jake, you don't have to sit out here. Come inside. I love you no matter what. And he went inside and that was the beginning of change and freedom for him. He needed to know that someone loved him no matter what. Warts and weaknesses, shamefulness, and all. And that's what God is saying to all of us in sending his son to die in our midst. That's what Advent is about. He's saying, come to me. I love you no matter what you've done. You are important enough to offer up my son. I care about what you care about. So, does God care if you get a parking space? I have no idea. Does he care if you care? Absolutely, he does. Does he care if you want to host a nice dinner? Does he care if you want to get your chores done in time to relax with your family? Absolutely, he does. God is infinite and eternal. He can give your cares all the time and attention needed, right, because he's infinite, he can be taking care of you as he's also caring for the people suffering in wars and refugee camps and global pandemics. So, if you care if you have enough money at the end of the month, God cares too. If you care about finding a decent job you actually like, God cares too. If you care about that sick family member, God cares too. Because you are important to your Heavenly Father. He cares about what you care about. And since he cares about what you care about. My second point, cast all your cares and anxieties upon him. Everyone has cares and anxieties and worries. It does not mean you are weak if you have those. Jesus, one of his last words he said to his disciples, he said, in the world you will have trouble. The question is, what do you do with those cares and and anxieties, and the answer to that matters because, of course, these cares, anxieties, worries, right, they can devour you. Peter writes, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We all know how fear and worry can eat us alive. And Peter is saying here that there is an actual evil spiritual being behind that. And there's lots of history and lots of people who can testify to the truth of that. The devil wants to use hardships, fear, and suffering to get everyone to give up on hope, on goodness, on God. He wants to use it to get us to numb ourselves in self medication or to retreat into bitterness and resentment or to crush and exhaust ourselves in the arrogance, thinking that we can actually solve our deepest problems. Peter says, resist this. Be on alert. How? Well, the beginning of the passage. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Humbling yourself under God's mighty hand is saying, I can't solve this problem. I can't resist this devouring lion myself. I admit I need protection and covering. I need someone stronger than me. I need God's mighty hand. It's like when you were a little kid uh, at night and a terrible thunderstorm comes. Now, if you grew up in California, you don't know what that's like, but everywhere else in the world, there can be these terrible thunderstorms that come in the middle of the night with lightning and wind and rain, and it's absolutely terrifying when you're a little kid. So what you do at some point in the middle of the night, you get out of bed and you scurry to your parents' room, and you say, can I get in bed with you? That's what it is. You you are removing yourself from the place of zero protection in your bed, and you're putting yourself under your parents' mighty hand in their bed. Let the fears and worries and pain and suffering drive you to God. You come under his protection by casting your cares and fears and anxieties upon him. Instead of self-medicating, instead of bitterness and fatalism, instead of overworking and going your own way, you trust him. With all your cares and worries and fears. So, what does it look like to do that? Well, I might say it's a sort of a two step cycle speak and step. You speak your cares and anxieties to God. Usually in prayer, in your own prayer language, however you might do it with singing and worship, whatever, through scripture, you express your worry and your need and trust in Him, and then you step. You step in faith. Might just be a baby step, but where would you go? What direction would you go in if God really did care about you and was using all things for your good? Go in that direction. Maybe the smallest, slightest step. And then speak again. God, I'm scared. And then take another little step. And then speak again. God, this really makes me afraid. And then take another step. You communicate your fears and worries and anxieties to God, and then you act as though the creator of the universe actually cares about you and your worries. Our model for this, as always, is Jesus on the cross. What is he doing there? He's praying. He's talking to God. He's speaking. He's literally praying scripture, right? Psalm 22. He's casting his cares upon his father and then he is stepping in faith, right? He's staying on the cross to die, trusting his father to vindicate him ultimately. That's Jesus standing firm. Speak and step. Cast all your cares upon God. Now, if you're a good Calvinist like me, then you might recognize, you know what? What if some of my cares and worries are sort of based in selfishness, right? sin. Wouldn't God be offended that that's what I'm I'm paying so much attention to this and I'm putting this on him? Well, the passage here doesn't say, cast your worthy cares upon God. It says, cast all. And in fact, in Greek, the all is emphasized. It comes first. All your cares cast upon him. And if you're concerned as I am about unworthy cares and sinful cares, then that's another care, right? Throw that, throw that on him. By the way, everything I said could come from sin, God. Forgive me, right? This isn't about getting your prayers right. This is about entrusting yourself to God who cares about you. Entrust all of your cares and fears to him. You humble yourself under his mighty hand because he cares for you. Other than Tim and Kathy Keller, the other couple who is most responsible for how we talk about the gospel and how we do church is Jack and Rosemarie Miller. They're the ones who developed the sonship curriculum that many of our guys are benefiting from. Their son at one point talked to, said to Rose Marie, was talking to her about this question about praying for parking spaces, you know, like some people debate about this or joke about this, and she responded quickly with utter sincerity. She said, how else do people find them? (laughs) Now, that probably sounds, uh, maybe it sounds naive and silly, but it's not. Because the deeper you go into God, the more you trust that your heavenly father cares for you and wants to hear about all your cares and anxieties, the more you will trust him for everything. God becomes real and relevant and present every moment of your life as you go to him in every moment. That's life abundant. You are free to be weak. You are free to be needy. You are free to be dependent. Cast all your cares I'm the God who cares for you. That's what Peter is saying, and he gives this reasoning because, verse 10, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. The gospel isn't good advice. It's good news. You can trust God because he finishes what he starts And in that first sentence of his letter, in verse three, chapter one, Peter says what he started. He says, "God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead." It's already been set in the set in motion for you. You have been born into this. Like Jesus, you might suffer for a little while, but then comes resurrection. This is what you have been effectually called to. It cannot be revoked. You have been born into it. So no matter what your fears, doubts, anxieties, weaknesses, God himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. It can't be undone. You are safe in Jesus Christ. And anyone who wants that safety can have it now simply by inviting Jesus in. Peter says, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. It's the grace of God, it's all a gift. This new life, this forgiveness, the being a part of the holy priesthood, perseverance through suffering, then glory. It's all a gift, it's grace. But if it's all a gift, and it's gonna happen no matter what, what, what role do I play? What does it mean to stand firm in a gift? What does it mean to stand firm in grace? It means you receive it, and you keep receiving it. And the way you do that is by casting all of your cares and anxieties upon him. That's how you stand firm, by trusting that God cares about what you care about. So you humble yourself under his mighty hand and you cast your cares upon him. There's a great 80s movie called Field of Dreams starring Kevin Costner. He plays an Iowa farmer named Ray Kinsella and Ray plows under his corn to build a baseball field because he kept hearing this voice in his head. You've heard it before. If you build it, he will come. For whatever reason, Ray thinks that if he builds a baseball field, the dead, shoeless Joe Jackson, will come and play. Which is odd, right, because uh, he and his dad fought over baseball and shoeless Joe Jackson. Ray was a typical rebellious teenager, and his father was a strong silent type, and his dad wanted his son to live out his own dreams of baseball. Their relationship shattered over baseball, and it was broken and never restored, and then his dad died. Of course, Shoeless Joe shows up to the baseball field, along with other baseball greats in their prime. They play all day, and then they go back into the corn and disappear at night. Finally, Ray asks Shoeless Joe, hey, can I come to the corn with you and see where you're going? And he says, no. And Ray gets angry. I did all this for you. I built this thing for you. And Shoeless Joe nods over to a, a young catcher taking off his catcher gear and says, if you build it, he will come. And Ray looks over and he realizes, that's my dad as a young man. And so he goes over to him, introduces himself, right? They come to realize who each other are. And his dad asks, is this heaven? And Ray says, no, it's Iowa. (laughs) And his dad says, Iowa? I could have sworn it's heaven. They shake hands, they say goodnight, they start walking away, and Kevin Costner turns around, he says, hey dad, wanna have a catch? And so they start throwing the baseball back and forth, and the camera pans out, and that's the end of the movie. And it's very, very clear, that is heaven. And for us, that is a picture of heaven. Heaven is playing catch in a restored, redeemed relationship with your heavenly Father. He's not General Patton. He's not distant or frustrated with you. There is forgiveness. There is innocence. There is longing fulfilled. Participating together in joy face to face. And not just with God, with all of his people, hopefully all of your family members, all of your friends, even your enemies. Every tear wiped from your eyes. Every wrong made right. This is what God is calling you to. So of course he cares about everything you care about and more. His love for you will not fail. Cast every care upon him and you will stand firm in his grace. Let's pray. God, we're grateful for this word. We're grateful that you love us. You care about us. You care about everything we care about because you love us. And so help us to cry out to you in faith. Help us to turn to you in in every moment. Help us to rely on you and recognize we don't have to toughen up. Instead, you are here to be with us and to walk with us. Help us to speak and step and trust in you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.